This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 10, uh, picking up in the middle of a long chapter that focuses on Jesus as a shepherd. We're going to be trying to unpack further, building on last week, unpack more about what it means for him to be a shepherd and, and what it would mean for us to follow him as a shepherd. And what this passage in particular points us to is one of the Bible's main themes. It's one of the themes that you cannot understand the Bible without, without understanding this theme. And, and yet, I think it's also one of the main reasons that people in our context here in America in the 21st century have, the, have trouble swallowing the message of the Bible. And that theme is the sovereignty of God. All through the Bible, God is described as being large and in charge, as being the God who is unmatched by anything else in this world or in our experience, the God who made everything that is, who controls everything that is, who knows everything that's to come because he decreed all that was to come. This God is, this God is not threatened or thwarted by any force under heaven. That's a God that can be hard for us to swallow. Because I think our main images for sovereignty, for this sort of all-encompassing authority, are negative ones in our culture today. We think of big brother, right? We think of, of spying, of totalitarianism. We think of cult leaders in a religious context. In our system here in America, we get begged for votes more often than told what to do by our sovereigns. Our sovereigns are more interested in getting us to vote for them than in telling us what to do in the nitty-gritty of our lives. And this was election week. I don't know how these people got a hold of my number, but I was getting multiple calls a day from campaigners who, I don't know if I clicked the wrong link in a Google search and, and, and Google told them that I would be especially susceptible to recorded messages about this school board district candidate that I've never heard of before, but I was just getting barraged by these. They, they are selling themselves to us, not domineering over us in our mind, Right? But this God of the Bible, this God from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, is described as, as one who has the right to command everything that is and has the power and ability to back up his commands. It comes out in the picture of creation where, the, where, where God just speaks a word and light shines in the darkness where he speaks a word and the earth is separated from the seas, where he speaks and the animals and the birds and the fish are formed. It comes out in the writings and the songs and the predictions of the prophets all through the Old Testament where the God of Israel is who he is. He, he, is, he is defined by his difference from the gods of Israel's neighbors who believed that, that the Israel's neighbors believed that the sun was one God, or that the rain was another, that the sea was another God. And, they, and that, that the idea was to, was to get these powerful natural forces on your side. Israel's God, by contrast, is the God who made the sun. He's the one who imagined it and gives source to its light, as we've just sung. He is the one who made the seas, who said they get to come this far and they don't get to come any further. You can't understand the Old Testament. You can't understand Israel and their identity without understanding that their God, they believed, was the God of all the universe who reigns in full and without threat. It's the key to Israel's history. And this picture of God's sovereignty also explains why so many of them, so many of Israel's, so many of Israel's leaders, when Jesus come on the scene, 
explains why so many of them wanted to kill him when Jesus showed his true colors. Because in the passage we come to today, Jesus is unequivocally, with crystal clarity, claiming that kind of sovereignty for himself. The passage begins with a crowd around Jesus asking him, who are you? Tell us plainly. The passage ends with people reaching for stones to put an end to his life. We want to understand why. And we won't understand it without looking square into the reality that this Jesus claims the right to rule over our lives just as he rules over everything that is. We want to understand what it means to follow a shepherd. One of the things we've been trying to do, especially last week when we came to this passage about the good shepherd, is get rid of the familiar images of Jesus as a precious moment's little cuddly, pudgy kid who carries lambs over his shoulders, right? And think about the shepherd as Israel would have thought of him. It was an image they used for their kings. The shepherd was one who was rough and tumble protector of the sheep, the one whom the sheep followed without question as the difference between life and death. That's what shepherd meant to those who first heard Jesus use these terms. We want to understand that sort of Jesus this morning. And that's going to mean confronting two things. It's going to mean confronting the threat of sovereignty in this picture of Jesus as a shepherd. We want to understand why those who first heard it didn't like it, why they didn't like it so much that they wanted to kill him. But then, looking, looking deeply into the very center of Jesus' comments in our text this morning, we want to understand the promise of his sovereignty because it isn't bad news. It's a threat, but it's not bad news that Jesus commands the right to, to lead us as, his, as our shepherd. It's, it's ultimately the best news in the world. We want to understand it and unpack the promise of his sovereignty. Threat of his sovereignty, promise of his sovereignty. That's where we're headed this morning. I want to begin by reading the passage. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read from John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. This is the word of the Lord. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated then sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? 
If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We've got to first understand the threat of sovereignty. What comes out clearly here is that these Jewish leaders, the ones John calls the Jews, they were ultimately threatening Jesus, right? Their question that starts out to him is coming at him, putting him on trial, and then they're reaching for stones to kill him. They see themselves as threatening him, but the reason they react that way is that underneath it all, they are deeply threatened by Jesus' message, by his description of himself as the shepherd, and by what's embedded in that description, his claim to the right to rule. The passage opens during another feast. There's a bunch of feasts in John. If you've been here with us very long in this series, you've probably noticed that. This one's called the Feast of Dedication. We call it Hanukkah. And the celebration is of a time about 160-something years before Jesus that, um, that Israel had gotten rid of, uh, of a colonizing power called the Seleucids. They defiled the temple, and the Jews rose up in revolt, and they cleansed the temple, and they cleared them out of Jerusalem, and they established what would be the last independent Israel uh, state of Israel until the 1940s. It only lasted for 100, 150 years, but it was there, and they claimed it as a, as a miracle of God's power. And then the Feast of Dedication was a feast celebrating when that temple was dedicated after it had been cleansed. So there's nationalism involved here, right? There's there's, there's a sense of anticipation of when God would finally deliver on his promises, when the Messiah or the Christ would come once and for all. Here we find Jesus walking in the temple. It's winter, so he's in out of the cold. He's in an area of the temple known as Solomon's Colonnade, and he's teaching anyone who will listen to him. And it's here that a crowd of Jews, again, in John's usage, just typically means Jewish leaders. Jesus himself was a Jew. All of Jesus' disciples were Jews. So saying that they're Jews doesn't really help you at uh, it doesn't really distinguish it. Usually, John means the Jewish leaders like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. It's here that this crowd confronts Jesus with a direct question. They ask him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. You can almost hear them complaining that, that they're tired of all this indirect language, all this talk of good shepherds, of the bread of life, of fountains of living water. Quit using these images and just tell us who you are. What they're asking for, what they've been asking for all along in the story of John, is more evidence. We need to see more before we can believe in you. It's a question that maybe you yourself brought here this morning. Jesus, if you are who you say you are, convince me. Perhaps another way to frame their question to him, basically it's a statement. Our unbelief is your problem. The fact that we don't believe is on you because you haven't shown us enough. But Jesus won't accept that framing. Jesus pushes back on them. He turns their charge around on them. And he says, I have told you, but you didn't believe. 
Now, there's no place that we've seen so far in John where he says the words, I am the Christ. He avoided that kind of language probably because he knew they understood it differently than him. He knew before he could tell them he was the one they were waiting for, he had to redefine what it was they wanted from the one they were waiting for. That it wasn't just about clearing the Romans out so they could have their own kingdom, just like the Maccabees had done 160 years ago. It was bigger than that. They needed someone who could conquer death for them. And that someone was going to have to die himself, not just be powerful enough to lead an army and get rid of the Romans, but, but give up his life for them. He had to redefine what they understood about the Christ. So he was saying things they didn't expect. He was saying things like, I am the bread of life. If you eat from me, you will never die. I am the fountain of living water. If you drink from me, you will never be thirsty. He was saying things that, that said he was the Christ without using those words. He had told them. They just didn't want to believe it. It isn't just what he said. He points them then next in, in verse 25 to the works that he's done. Not only have I told you these things, but look what I've been doing with myself. You've seen it. I don't think he's talking about here the, the fact that he has miraculous power. Jesus has always been kind of negative on, on how, much, how much you can gain from watching him do amazing things. Like faith that's only based on the fact that Jesus did miracles is weak faith. He's always said that. What I think he's getting at is these, when he says that these works that my father gave me bear witness about me, he's, he's saying what John has been saying all along, which is that they're signs. The amazing things that he did were not just raw displays of power, but symbols of what he came to do with his life and death and resurrection. They point to the beauty and the fullness of what Jesus was about. So these, these works testify about him. It's these works that point it to, to him as the one who would bring joy and feasting and celebration when he turned water into wine so that a, a party that was fizzling out could go on and on. It's what he was getting at when he fed 5,000 people with a mid-morning snack, pointing to the unending and life-giving power of his own life given as bread for the life of the world. It's what he was getting at when he healed a blind man, something that the prophets had told would happen, but no one else had ever done. He heals this man, gives him sight as an image of the sight that he will give to all who come to him. His works bear witness, and he's told everyone plenty about who he is. The problem isn't the evidence. So why don't they believe? Jesus answers this in part in verse 26. You do not believe, he says, because you are not part of my flock. What kind of answer is that? You don't believe because you're not one of my sheep. I think what he's saying is something John said before, that whether you believe or not stems from who you are, from something in you. And it's not just a matter of us coming to the evidence as blank slates and weighing it objectively, like someone in a laboratory. We come to the evidence as lovers of something. Even more specifically, from where Jesus is coming today, we come to the evidence as followers of something, as people who have an allegiance to something. We come to the evidence as sheep who are following some sort of shepherd. And these who have seen and heard all of Jesus have done and still not believed in him, don't believe, Jesus says, because you belong to someone else's flock. Your heart belongs to someone else. What you love is someone and something other than me and what I'm offering you. And so long as you are not my sheep, you can't hear me and understand me. He's saying what John said back in chapter 3. 
I mean, Jesus said that the light shines into the darkness, but the darkness, people love the darkness more than they love the light because they love their deeds and they, like, they love the fact that they could hide in the darkness, that in the darkness they could be and do what they want and not be exposed for it. They want to hide. They don't want to receive Jesus. They don't want the evidence to be true. Jesus is saying, that they are viewing the evidence for his identity through a grid of their allegiance to some other shepherd. They're not part of his flock. I think that this is what's going on. It gets reinforced in the later section, in verses 31 to 39. So so we're going to come back to Jesus' words about how he cares for his sheep. We're going to come back there in just a minute. But in, in describing how his sheep hear and follow him and the way that he protects them and leads them and provides for them, Jesus makes it clear that he is attaching himself to God, to God the Father, the God of Israel, to Yahweh himself, that he and this God are one. He is claiming the kind of sovereignty that belongs, that Israel knew belonged only to God. And they, they will not tolerate it. They pick up the stones, not because of the works Jesus has done, but because They believe he's guilty of blasphemy. Verse 33 says, because you, being a man, make yourself God. You don't get to be sovereign. You don't get to be our shepherd. They'd rather stone him than submit to him. They'd rather him lose his life than govern their lives. They are threatening Jesus because they are threatened by Jesus. And to their credit, They get the point of his words, and you should too. He is not claiming that he is a wise teacher who can point you towards how to live a better life. He's not claiming that he just has mere power, charisma, or even miraculous ability. He's claiming a right to ownership, to sovereignty over those who are in his flock. And the implication, the implication of Jesus' claim to sovereignty is that there is no area of your life that isn't his to guide. That he gets to speak to what you do for fun, to what you buy with your money, to who you're allowed to love and whether you're allowed to sleep with them, to what you aim to accomplish with your life. And sometimes what he says, sometimes what he says won't make immediate sense to you and you aren't going to like it. Sometimes you won't understand And will be tempted to unbelief because it doesn't make sense to you how what Jesus says is connected to your ability to flourish as a human. Sometimes that connection will be loose and obscure to you. And it's in those times that you're going to be tempted to unbelief, not because the evidence isn't there, friends. Not because the evidence isn't there. But because you don't want the evidence to be true. It may be that like these Jews, you don't believe because you're not and don't want to be one of his sheep. And it is true. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It It's true that following Jesus always means repentance. It always means laying down your arms. It always means yielding to your own sovereignty and submitting to his sovereignty. Always means that. And that is threatening. It's threatening to a life you might have imagined for yourself, to a life that you might want the freedom to pursue without any obstacle. I want you this morning to at least consider that if you're struggling to believe, either as someone considering Jesus or as someone who is a Christian 
and evaluating whether to stay one, that your struggle to believe may have more than you realize to do with what your heart loves. Not a lack of evidence. And what I want you to consider the rest of the moments that we have together this morning, what I want you to consider is that if you choose to submit to Jesus, even though that's threatening to a life you may have imagined for yourself, if you choose to submit to him, what you'll find is that his sovereignty is actually liberating. I want us to focus the rest of the time we have on the the promise of God's sovereignty, of Jesus as our sovereign shepherd. If you're willing to accept the threat of his sovereignty to your autonomy, there is a better freedom underneath his sovereignty than you'll ever get on your own. I want to illustrate this point for you before we develop it and what Jesus says. A few years back, uh, before we had kids, my wife and I had a very brief career as dog owners. And our, uh, our friends Drew and Sharon Rains, I don't think they're here this morning, so I get to talk about them freely. Uh, they also had a dog. They didn't have kids either. Our dog was named Winthrop. Their dog was named Berkeley. Now, Winthrop was a little Boston Terrier. He was full of energy. Lindsay and I both worked full-time jobs. So he stayed in his crate all day. And we'd come home, and we'd open that crate, and he would shoot out like a cannonball, and there was no stopping him. He had the force and the claws to climb the wall, and that's literal, not figurative. (laughs) He would tear around the house. There, There was no talking to him. And we made all the mistakes in the book on training or lack of training for dogs. We had... No command over this little guy. He'd tear around the room. He'd leap up and over the furniture. He'd run all over the yard. He would defecate whenever and wherever it felt right to him. He would mock. I think in a sinister way would mock our every attempt to call him to us. When we would call him, Winthrop, here, come. And he would just look at us and just and take off the other way. Now, 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 to look at it, if you didn't know, you would think that that dog was free. That he was a free spirit. He was doing his own thing. And no one, not even those who supplied his food, had the right to tell him otherwise. That's what it would look like. But if you look closer, if you knew this dog, what you would know about Winthrop is that he was a nervous wreck. That he was defensive against everything that moved. That he believed his security and our security was on him. That he was the one who had to protect us and himself. Now, Berkeley, on the other hand, was perfect. And this dog was amazing. I don't know how they, did this, how they pulled this off. This dog was incredible. Berkeley would sit on command, lay down on command. He would eat on command. He would sit there and look at his food until they told him to go eat it. He could just about poop on command. He didn't, but he, he could just about do that. He looked to Drew and Sharon for everything. But in a sense... He was far more free than Winthrop ever was. He was calm. He didn't go crazy every time the doorbell rang. You know, every, time somebody, every time the mailman walked in front of the house, he didn't just go at him. When he was outdoors, he didn't even need a leash. And it didn't take long for us to realize we couldn't take Winthrop anywhere. Dog parks were a disaster for our little guy. We couldn't hardly even walk him in the neighborhood because, because the leash could barely hold him. 
Berkeley, they could take him out without even a leash. They could throw Frisbee to him in their neighborhood without any fear because he existed underneath the realm of protection and sovereignty that they had established for him. He wasn't free to do whatever he wanted like Renthrop was, but, but there's another sort of freedom that comes from accepting your limitations, a freedom that comes from recognizing the boundaries that have been put around you by one who loves you, by one who knows what's best for you, who can see the picture, the bigger picture that you can't see, and who is telling you what to do if you want to flourish. There's a kind of freedom that comes from the sovereignty of a shepherd. And that's the kind of freedom Jesus holds out to us, even as he calls us to follow him with everything in our lives. That's the promise of his sovereignty that I want to unpack in the time we've got left together. I want to point you to three things Jesus says about himself and the care that he provides to all who look to him in these, in these central verses of the passage that we've read. So verse 27 to 30 are the ones we want to really dig in on now. 27 to 30. Three things about Jesus' sovereign care over us. And then, and then we'll close by pointing to why we can trust his sovereign care over us. Here's the, here's the first thing he says, the first aspect of his sovereign care that is good news to us, that's a promise to us, not a threat, if we'll yield to him. Here's the promise. The sovereign shepherd knows his sheep. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. He's contrasting them here with those that he's speaking to who don't hear his voice and aren't his sheep. And my sheep follow me, the end of the verse says. Again, contrasting him with those who are rejecting Jesus here. But did you notice what's in the middle? In the middle of a verse that's all about what the sheep do, John unexpectedly switches to, to Jesus as the subject. When you, just reading it, you would almost expect him to say, my sheep hear my voice, my sheep know me, trust me, and my sheep follow me. And that would be a true statement. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, my sheep hear my voice, I know my sheep, and my sheep follow me. Now, this is a jam-packed with significance kind of knowledge that the Bible talks about in the Old and New Testaments. It's not just that he knows who they are. It's that he knows them intimately. He knows them with a distinguishing, set-on-them, loving knowledge. He knows them with an active and intimate and comprehensive knowledge. His sheep have names and faces. They're not simply a crowd of stinky and filthy and noisy and needy and stupid hunks of meat like they would be to a hired hand. He knows their hopes and their dreams, their fears and their insecurities, their deepest points of vulnerability, and he loves his sheep with his life. This knowledge of the sheep is closer to what I experienced recently. Coming home from a week of travel... It was international travel, so I had to come back through customs. And that's the worst, right? I mean, you guys know. Coming through customs is the worst, especially after a long flight when you're exhausted. You're kind of walking around like a zombie anyway. And it is, the, it is one of the most dehumanizing experiences I ever have coming through customs. And this one was worse because I came through one of these experimental customs. Anybody else been through this? They're working towards this kiosk-based system. Uh, where, where you don't even have to talk to anybody. You don't even have to look at anybody. You don't have to be known even that you exist by anybody except a machine. It was a disaster. I mean, they are not ready for this new system. Let me just tell you. If you can find out which airports have the new automated system, you need to make sure that you avoid them in your connecting flights. They herded us into this room, again, like cattle, with a bunch of screens, and you go from one kiosk to the next, doing different things with your passport and your 
and your, and your uh, boarding pass. And then they would put your name, or not even your whole name, but more like a three-letter abbreviation of your name up on this screen that tells you when you are allowed to go into the next line that you're going to stand in. And then at the end of the process, I ended up standing the exact same two lines that I've always stood in no matter where I've come through customs. It was all just a shame. I have no idea what they're, what they're after. But it's a dehumanizing thing. It's impersonal. It's, it's demeaning almost. The closest thing I had experienced to human interaction on this trip home, like 16, 18-hour trip, was a nameless flight attendant shoving a free plastic cup of Coke in my hand. And then I get home. And I'm coming through the halls of B&A. Right, I'm coming up to that area where you get received. There's a big crowd coming, a big crowd waiting. But amongst the crowd, amidst the crowd, my family sees my face and they know me. They see me and they light up. My kids are throwing every ounce of their being into waving at me. Huge smiles, screaming at me, Daddy! They know me. They know who I am. They know what they love about me. Their life was was less than what it normally is without me there. There was a hole in it. I was known. The contrast between, between the customs experience and a few hours later, the reception that my family gives me is, is the contrast that Jesus wants you to see between the shepherds you might be tempted to follow, friends, the hired hands who do not care for you, who want to exploit you, they want to take what you have, and Jesus who sees you and knows you. He sees straight through you. He knows everything you're afraid of. He knows everything you hope to accomplish. He knows everything that threatens you, and he is bigger and better. He is more powerful than anything that might threaten you. He sees you, he knows you, and his power, his knowledge is more than just empathy. His knowledge is married to a power that spoke the world into existence. So he knows not just what you need, but how to give it to you. You can trust your life to this shepherd because this shepherd knows his sheep. More than that, this shepherd, secondly, this shepherd, he protects his sheep from death. Friends, what these other shepherds, these hired hands that you may be tempted to follow are going to offer you is a better life. They're going to offer you more pleasure than you could get if you follow Jesus, more success than you could get if you submit your life to Jesus and his priorities, more affirmation from other people than you can get. Sometimes following Jesus means people don't like you. They will offer you these things. But friends, these things wither and they fade. These things will die with you. But Jesus promises that he gives eternal life to those who follow him, that they will never perish. You see that? It's both. It's both positive, what he gives to them, and negative, what he keeps from them. He gives them a life that won't end, and he protects them from perishing like everyone else. Apart from Jesus and his promise of life, we are all enslaved, the writer of Hebrews tells us, to the fear of death. It can be hard to see it sometimes, especially when you're young. It may not be like an active thing in your mind, but it should be. Because your life is going to be over the blink of an eye. Every human life that's ever been lived felt that way. Yours will too. These hired hands that you might be wanting to give your life to, they can't keep you from it. But Jesus can. This is a shepherd who laid down his life so that he could take it up again. We were told last week. He had the authority to lay it down. He has the authority to take it up again because he has the power of the one who created life. Submitting to his sovereignty means you may not get to govern your life, 
but it means you can have life. Here's the last thing. This is also in verse 28, but then reinforced in verse 29. The sovereign shepherd, he, he knows his sheep. You can trust him for that. That's the promise of his sovereignty. He protects his sheep from death. You can trust him to do that like no one else can. And the sovereign shepherd preserves his sheep. This is the image of verse 28 when he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. I love that language. No one and nothing can take his sheep away. I mean, if, if not death, if death isn't a threat, what really could ever hurt or threaten those to whom Jesus gives life? Jesus isn't promising here that you won't know pain. He isn't promising that there aren't things in this world or people in this world or forces or influences that won't try to snatch you. He's not promising you a a snatched-free life, right? There are things that are coming for you. What he's saying is that he can protect you, that he can make it so that nothing, no matter how great the sorrow, the pain, the loss, that nothing can snatch you out of his hand. He's saying that not even you and your weak faith can keep you from him. That if you hold to Jesus, no matter how weak your hold on him may be, what matters most is the strength of his hold on you. So friend, if you are struggling this morning to hold on, just hold on, okay? You may not have all the answers. Those may never come. It may be that other voices are are louder than the one that Jesus is speaking to you with this morning. It may be that other things in your world are in high-definition video, and Jesus' Jesus' words here are are in crackly AM radio audio. But hold on to that voice. And as long as you hold on, you can know that he is holding on to you, that his hold won't break. So friends, do not let go. Here's the last thing I want to leave you with. Jesus promised that he won't let anything happen to those who love him and follow him, to those who give their lives to him. Could sound a bit like a father making that promise to a frightened child. You know, a child who's afraid of robbers coming into the house or the storms and what, what might happen in a lightning storm or a tornado. Whatever. Pick a childhood fear. You know, a well-meaning father can speak truth in some sense when he says to his child, I won't let anything happen to you. But in another sense, that father is overextended. He's well-meaning, but he's overextended. And his promise, to some extent, is hollow. He can't make sure that they don't get leukemia. He can't know that they won't get hit by a drunk driver in traffic. He can't protect them from the cruelty of other children in middle school. How can this man, this Jesus, this man, he was a man, how can he claim to prevent any harm from coming to his sheep? That's the message of verses 29 and 30. I just want you to sit on it going from here, to celebrate it and savor it and pray that God will help you to understand it. He doesn't stop with his promise to take care of the sheep. He says, my father who has given these sheep to me, he's greater than all. They're mine because he gave them to me as a present. Nothing, no power in heaven, earth, or under the earth is is a match for his power. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. We hold on to the same things. I can deliver because my Father is with me. Friends, no one in the history of Christian thought has ever been able to fully understand the mystery that is the Trinity. Christians believe that, that God exists as three persons, as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, that they're, that they're one but also different from each other. Jesus' words here are one of the classic texts that point to that, that they're one but different. We, we're not going to try to unpack it this morning. What I want you to leave with, though, is this knowledge, that for, for whatever mystery there is with the Trinity, there is one thing that is crystal clear about it, that what joins together these different persons, what joins together the, the Father and his son, at least in part, is their unflinching, unbroken, unshakable commitment to taking care of you. The God who hung every star in place on purpose gives them all a name. The God who said the seas come here and no further. The God who gave you life and life to anything else that has breath. That God, existing as father and son, is unified in himself in caring for you if you will follow him. That's a threat to the life you might want. But it comes with the promise of life that no one else can snatch away. What do you hear this morning? Hear his voice, friends. Father, we need your spirit to help us here. We don't on our own. We must be born again. I pray, Father, for anyone sitting here who has not known this new birth, that you would give them your spirit right now to see and savor the beauty in this promise of Jesus. That you would overcome their desire to live for themselves. That you would confront them with the stark reality of their death. And that it would drive them to the, to the shepherd who gives life, who will keep them from perishing, and against whom no one can stand. Guide us, we pray. Protect us and hold us fast. For your name's sake, amen.